It's a privilege to be able to be involved with young people, isn't it? And it's kind of interesting how the Lord brings different talks together. Did you hear a reference to the title of my talk sometime already? So, a question I would ask, do you believe we're at war? Thank you, Steve. I saw some heads nodding. War is a horrible thing. But we're going to spend some time talking about war and how it impacts all of us, but particularly our young people. You see what's happening there? They're going away from you, right? That's young people. And there they go. Before they reach the age 20, over 50% of our youth will leave the church. Does that bother you at all? Does that disturb you? That's the future. Actually, that's the church of today. If they're not the church of today, they won't be the church of tomorrow. I'm here to tell you that. So why are they leaving? Well, it goes back to this very topic. We're at war. And this war, as we know it, is between good and evil. That's the real war. And it has deep meaning for each and every one of us. But he is after our young people. And the interesting thing is, the war began in heaven of all places. And there was war in heaven. Those words in itself are a conundrum. And there was war in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil, and Satan, which does what? Deceives how much? The whole world. That means you and me, right? And our young people. The con man that came about in heaven was and is so good that he actually talked a third of the angels out of the very presence of God. Now, you've got to be good to do that. A third of the angels out of the very presence of God. He talked our first parents out of the Garden of Eden. And he will talk us and our young people out of our salvation. Except by the grace of God. So what is this war all about? Because, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, I'll go here to the next part. The war actually is for the mind, you see. Because in heaven they didn't have machine guns and hand grenades. They didn't have bombs. It was a battle for the mind. That's where it all takes place. And whatever happens there manifests itself throughout the rest of the world. And all the outcomings of that. All right, so I jumped too far forward. Let's see if this will do that. There we go. Satan invents unnumbered schemes 
to occupy our minds that they may not dwell upon the very work with which we ought to be best acquainted. He knows that with him, how much? Everything. That is the ball game. That is everything right there. Depends on his diverting minds from Jesus and his truth. Unnumbered schemes, whatever it takes to distract us. Proverbs 23, 7, what a man thinks in his heart, what? That's who you are. I keep jumping ahead with two. I can't hold that down, I guess. So whatever goes on in up here, that makes us up who we are. Satan is battling for our young people. The minds of our young people, and he does it in so many ways today. Our kids are surrounded more so than ever before. From the time they get up until the time they go to sleep at night. They are surrounded with these voices that hammer them all day long. What to think, where to go, what to say. What to wear? Being bombarded by these voices trying to guide our young people, and us, of course, as well. Screen time is a big thing these days, right? I mean, when we look at it, I can have screen time wherever I am. And young people have screens with them pretty much wherever they go nowadays. In fact, that's how they communicate. They can be in the same room and text back and forth. It's a weird thing. But that's what they do. Screen time. All kind of screen time. And it's very interesting. And I put those little kids there at the bottom for a reason. Have you ever watched an 18-month-old baby play with an iPad? Do they get it? Do they know how to deal with that? Starting young, yeah, screen time. Before they even know what screen time is, it just gives them something they want to have or something to do. And then, you know, kids can be wherever nowadays with their phones, but, you know, they have the computers in their rooms, and parents have no clue where those kids are going and what they're doing many times. I can have my phone, and I can go anywhere in the world I want to with that phone. I can talk to people. I can text people. I can go online, and I can see all kind of things. I can ask Siri all kind of messages, you know, and gives me the information. Kids have all this available to them. And then music. Of course, music's a part of the smartphone it seems to me I remember something about Satan and music. What about him? What did he do? Choir director, that's kind of what I've heard, you know, through the years. So he gets music, right? He understands music. And I don't know about you, but music moves me probably as much or more than anything else. Good music can have a huge impact, or bad music. 
And it's an interesting thing about young people. I watch them going down the street or in the mall or whatever. Nowadays, they have just one earpiece in. I don't get it. The other one's dangling around. They're just walking down the street, you know, doing their tunes, you know. But that's what they do. Music, very important in influencing our minds. Average kids today get seven and a half hours of screen time daily. Or really, actually, they, they do what they call multitasking. And, and I've come to believe that that's the case. Now, it may not be in your home, but a typical kid will wake up in the morning, and what do you think the first thing is that they do? And, and what do they do with it? Text, yeah. See who's alive, who's going out there. And as they're texting and kind of getting ready, it occurs to them, oh man, I still have homework to do. So they're over there hammering away, and they probably have their tunes going, or they're texting on the side, and the television's playing over there. All these things happening at the same time. Ten and a half hours. And did I mention that that was outside of school? And nowadays... Many schools are now having what they call one-to-one programs where every kid has their own device. iPads, whatever. So they get some screen time. Of course, that's going to be more directed, thankfully. But screen time, lots of it. And then television, and it's probably more now. But the last time I checked, by the time they're 18, kids have watched over 17,000 hours of television. About three hours a day. And at one time, I used to think that our kids, Adventist kids, didn't watch that much television. But I've come to the conclusion that I'm wrong. Just about every home you go into, there's a television in the living room. There's a television in the bedrooms. There's a television in the kitchen, because you've got to stay on top of the news. You, know, you can't just wander from one room to the other and not be in touch. So there's a television in just about every room of the house these days. So that kind of thing is happening in the lives of these kids every day. And through television, I realize these are older, but the point still remains. You can invite Satan into your home in more ways than one, but very directly by the television shows that go on. In fact, I was in Atlanta in a hotel, and I see on the screen this lady that says, here's the number, call this number. If you had a loved one pass away and you want to communicate with them, call this number and we will help you communicate with your loved one who passed away on television. Right into our own homes, or now... Screen it right, stream it right here, right? Have television wherever you want to go. So it's, it's a very real thing. And movies. This was a signs of the times a while back. Hollywood's battle for your mind. Hollywood gets it. You might have met uh, Dr. Gene Brewer. He was a co-worker of mine for a few years at the Southern Union. He was at a brain conference. He used to go to those things and hear about how the brain functions and what impacts the brain and all that kind of thing. And so during a break, he was talking to this guy beside him, and it turns out this guy was from Hollywood. 
And he goes, Hollywood, why are you at a brain conference? Because we want to know how people think. We want to be able to influence their thinking. It's by design. Hollywood gets it. But really what they're wanting to do, I mean, they want to influence your thinking so that you'll go and dip into this, come watch their movies, right? It's a multi-billion, billion-dollar business. And there's a new movie every time you turn around. I mean, just, uh, these are way outdated, I'm sure, but I'd spend half my life just updating that slide right there. A movie you just have to see. And so, a lot of them run out. Spend that, what, 10 bucks, 15 bucks, whatever it costs nowadays to watch the newest movie out. And then we find that our young people are being raised in Generation Me. You ever heard of Generation Me? If you haven't, understand that you're living in Generation Me. It's very real. In fact, there is a book that was entitled Generation Me. I had to buy the book. Now, you probably can't see that, and maybe you can. Why today's young Americans are more confident, assertive, entitled, and more miserable than ever before. What a problem. But have you not seen that? (laughs) More entitled, but more miserable than ever before. So this research done in the book covered six decades and 1.3 million people showing how this country developed Generation Me. And we worked hard at it. Every generation wants their kids to have it better than they did. Am I right? And that basically has happened in America. And we live in an entitled generation. If you don't understand that, it's because you haven't been out and about. Because we live in a very entitled society. Or at least they think they are. The author says this, Today's young people speak the language of self as their native tongue. An example. When I was growing up, it was always Johnny and me. Now how is it? It's me and Johnny. Sorry about you, Johnny. Well, maybe not. It's just me. It's all about me. The individual has always come first, and feeling good about yourself has always been the primary virtue in this generation. They're not self-absorbed, they're self-important. And if you don't believe it, go to their Facebook page. How many selfies are there? I mean, when I was growing up, a selfie? Are you kidding me? What's a selfie? We live in a generation of me. And our kids are growing up in that environment. And that is totally opposite of what God has asked us, right? What a struggle that our kids are facing. Dr. Twinge says this, The society that molds you when you are young stays with you the rest of your life. Now, some of you are my age, and you grew up in the 60s and 70s. It's still hanging around, right? 
It's there. Those were great years of conflict and discovery and all kind of different things that took place. It stays with you the rest of your life. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. And I don't know about you, but I probably have fought that battle already today. It's a daily struggle that we all have to deal with self. Self gets in the way. That's where the whole problem started in heaven, right? Education, page 227 or 225. Character building is the most important work ever entrusted to human beings. And never before was this diligent study so important as now. Never was any previous generation called to meet issues so momentous. Never before were young men and young women confronted by peril so great as confront them today. Now, when was today? Well, today is today, but when was that written? I went and looked in front of the book. Copyright, 1903. And she, what would she say today? But that is very applicable to us, right? And to our kids. Momentous challenges that they face. It takes three entities, though, for character development to take place. And those entities are so important in the, young, in the lives of our young people. A Christian home, first and foremost, where Jesus Christ is a part of the home. And a school where Jesus Christ is welcomed into the classroom each and every day. And that supports the home. And then the church. The church, you might say, ratifies the whole thing. Those three entities are what make the difference. We're going to spend some time with that as we go along. Guard your heart or your mind above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Whatever goes on up here determines what's going to happen in your life and in the lives of our young people. In fact, at the end of every chapel, when I was principal of Highland Academy, I would say to them the very last words, make good decisions. That's all life is, right? Making decisions. Am I going to get out of bed? What clothes am I going to wear? Am I going to go to class? Am I going to wash my clothes or am I going to Febreze them? That was a challenge, you know. Still is probably. What goes on up here? That determines the course of our life. And I want to tell you that the con man is really... Really, I mean, he is really good at what he does. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Who made this statement? I believe today that my conduct is in accordance with the will of the Almighty Creator. Now, a lot of people could say that, I know. But in your wildest dreams, would you have ever thought it would be this guy? But those words came out of his mouth. Satan's good at what he does. And I just put those 
two words up there. Does that not conjure up some thoughts in your mind? Newtown, Connecticut. Do you remember what happened there? Does it conjure up images like this? And I asked myself, what would cause this young man to take a weapon like that and shoot beautiful children like this young lady there? What would possess them to do that? And yet it happened. Satan's good at what he does. Solomon, second wisest man that ever lived. Who was the wisest? Okay, just wanted to make sure. Second wisest man that ever lived. And here's what happened to him. He who in his early reign had displayed so much wisdom and sympathy in restoring a helpless babe to its unfortunate mother fell so low as to consent to the erection of an idol to whom living children were offered as sacrifices. Did you know that? Wow. Satan played him like a puppet. And our kids are dealing with this every day. The heart is deceitful above how much? All things. Not some things or a few things. All things. And desperately wicked. Right here. Inside of us. Our mind will deceive us quicker and more often than Satan will. That is a difficult statement to deal with. We are born in sin as sinners, right? And only by the grace of God can we get past this type of own self-deception. He talked to 30 angels out of heaven. Talked our parents out of the Garden of Eden. The con man is subtle. He doesn't overwhelm us anymore. Because he know that doesn't work. Subtleties. The voices that constantly bombard all day, every day, the lives of our young people, the minds of our young people. So what hope is there for our youth if this is happening? I mean, they have these little devices, these things that they carry with them everywhere. It is an appendage to them. What hope is there for them? It is a law of the human mind that by beholding we become changed. And we're mystified as to why people get in a hotel, break out the windows, and shoot all these individuals down below them. And yet, I wonder how many hours that person might have spent in front of these video games blowing people away. It was just part of the game. Who knows? But by beholding, we become changed. And that is so true for our young people. Those who would not fall a prey to Satan's devices must guard well the avenues of the soul. They must avoid reading, seeing, or hearing that which will suggest impure thoughts. The mind must not be left to dwell at random upon every subject that the enemy of souls may suggest. 
The heart must be faithfully sentinelled, or evils without will awaken evils within. Wow, they're there. They're planted there. And the soul will wander in darkness. Battle for the minds of our kids. If that's the case, is it possible? Is there any way our young people could hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil? Is that possible? Well, I believe it is. Their hope, as they are told us in Value Genesis study, is when the home, the school, and the church work effectively, and the key word is effectively, together. If those three entities do not work together, if there's one that falls down in the process, our young people are vulnerable. But if they do work effectively together, there's a 99% probability that our young people will have an intrinsic faith in Jesus. I like those odds. But how often do the home, the church, and the school work together? The devil's good at what he does. Just a little bit of discord. Did you hear what happened at the school? Or they go home and and, uh, have the preacher for lunch. And the kids hear all this. But if they work together... If they support one another, a 99% probability they'll have an intrinsic faith in Jesus. Counsel to parents, teachers, and students, only the power of God can save our children from being swept away by the tide of evil. The responsibility resting upon parents, teachers, and church members to do their part in cooperation with God is greater than words can express. Those three entities working together Have y'all ever seen one of these before? Some of you have. What is it? A three-legged stool, but what did they use it for? Back in the day, you know. Milking cows, yeah, generally speaking. Now, what happens if one of those legs is gone? They have a three-legged stool for a reason. Two-legged stool doesn't work. Now, you could have a one-legged stool. They've done that before. But you need all three for that stool to stay up. So, you know, we could say that the home, the school, and the church are there. And that develops that intrinsic faith in Jesus. And we're going to take just a couple of minutes with each one of these. We'll start with the home. Too much importance cannot be placed on the early trainings of children. The lessons that the child learns during the first seven years of life have more to do with forming the character than what? Than all that it learns in future years. Those first seven years set the foundation. That's what it's all about, starting right there in the home. The influence of a carefully guarded Christian home in the years of childhood and youth is the surest safeguard against the corruption of this world. Starting right there, being careful of those things at home. George Barna. You've heard of George Barna, the guy that does all the research and so on. Said this. 
By age 13, a child has developed the value system they will die with. Is that biblical? Why would you say that? What happens? Train up the child in the way he should go. Yes. But what happened in the Jewish economy at the age 12? Wasn't that the time they were determined to be a man? I think he nailed it. By age 13, a child has developed the value system they will die with. Now, by the grace of God, anything can happen. We realize that. But that's a powerful statement. How do parents develop a Seventh-day Adventist value system in their children? Well, the Bible's pretty clear about that, I think. Deuteronomy 6, 4-7. You all probably have memorized this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. How often is that? All the time. A consistent message. From the time they get up until the time they go to bed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. It is a 24 hours a day, 365 days a year evangelistic series in the home. The longest and most consistent evangelistic series should take place right there. So let's go to the second leg, the school. And I say this to parents because I believe it. If the battle is for the mind, then it matters where you send your kid to school. Is that right? It matters where you send your kid to school. Do you realize teachers are paid? That's their job to influence how kids think. Now, we don't think about that a lot probably, but it's their job description to change your kid's thinking. I don't believe that even if it's a Christian school and maybe a great place to be, that there aren't subtle differences when they go down the street to another school and they spend six hours a day, five days a week, and maybe more than that. Remember that Satan deals with the mind in subtle ways. Subtle ways. I thought this was great. They, the teachers, are co-workers with the angels. Wow. Isn't that great? Rather, they are human agencies through whom the angels accomplish their mission. Angels speak through their voices and work by their hands every day. And that makes a difference. I'm here to tell you. I'm a product of that myself. A place where teachers pray with children every day. 
and pray for them. There was a teacher who had taught in this one-room schoolhouse for most of her career. And she was retiring, and there was a celebration. And all of these people showed up, very successful individuals. And somebody asked her, what is it that you did that had such a profound influence on these young people? And she says, you know, I don't really know for sure. But I do know one thing, that every day I came early enough to stand before the desk of every child and lift them up to Jesus Christ. Now, if they didn't do one other thing than that, that's powerful. Praying for every kid, that when they came, the Holy Spirit would be there at their desk to welcome them. The Lord would use the church school as an aid to parents in educating, preparing their children for this time before us. Nothing is of greater importance than the education of our children and young people. Now, I didn't say that's the only thing. The most important, it says nothing is more important than that. And that includes evangelism or whatever. Oh, by the way, maybe that is evangelism. What do you think? We're on the same page. Keeping our young people in the church is critical. They provide stability. By having grown up in the church. Nothing is of greater importance. Helping our young people to have somebody else. Now, I know that when kids grow up, and my wife and I were the same way, there's a disconnect somewhere in there when they're growing up. Mom and Dad don't get it. But I was glad that we were a part of an Adventist school system. We were in boarding schools for 26 years. Somebody there did connect with them. And that helped them understand the bigger purpose, that God has a place for them in his work. Where godly people, godly teachers, could help shape and mold and direct their lives. A 180-day evangelistic series every year. At the union office, we would get together and we'd have these director reports and People would talk about the evangelistic series that they were running and and the people that were baptized and that type of thing. And I couldn't help but raise my hand and say, well, we've started another 180-day evangelistic series with about 10,000 young people in the Southern Union. And it's making a difference every day. (laughs) And we tend to take those things for granted. Well, of course, you know, you're doing that. Thanks. Appreciate it. I'm telling you, what an evangelistic series. In fact, the two most successful evangelistic series ever done in the church are what? What do you think they are? I've been kind of alluding to one. Okay, schools, what is what the other one might be? <laughs> She's been at my talks before. The school and Pathfinders. Those two coupled together make a huge impact on our young people. So, value Genesis. There is clear evidence that the longer our children remain in Seventh-day Adventist schools, the more likely it is they will stay in the church. 
Value Genesis study. If you don't know that, is the biggest study ever done by any church of its young people. And we have now done it three times. 1990, 2000, 2010. To find out how our young people think and what they think about their church. That's important. And they're telling us things that we need to know. So, we'll go to the last leg, the church. Councils to parents, teachers, and students. God has appointed the church as a what? A watchman to have a jealous care over the youth and children and as a sentinel to see the approach of the enemy and give warning of danger. But the church does not realize the situation. What is happening? She is sleeping on guard. Is that possibly one of the reasons why 50% of our kids are going out the door? Now, you know, we can always point our fingers at different things. But those three entities, don't forget that. All three working together. Tony Campolo, have you ever heard of him? Christian sociologist. Some people have issues with sociologists and all that kind of thing. I get it. But he has changed a lot of people's lives. But he decided he would go back to the hood where he grew up in Philadelphia, <clears throat> which happens to be, some of you know, happy right now. Why? Their team won the Super Bowl. Just a divergence, but goes back to Philadelphia and checking out things there where he lived. And he discovers his church. And it's all boarded up. The church was gone. Nobody was meeting there anymore. And he asked the question, why do churches die? Well, somehow he got access to that church and got into wherever it was. And this file cabinet was there. And he went in and he opened up the file cabinet. And in there were records of baptisms. And so he went to the year that he was baptized, and this is what he found. Only one piece of paper with a short statement. There were only three conversions in the previous 12 months, and they were just children. Just children. And he goes, just children? Are you kidding me? I know the other two guys. One served as a missionary for years in Africa. The other became a missionary, a seminary president. I dedicated myself to Christian higher education. Three children influenced how many lives? <clears throat> but they were just kids. So he figured he had the answer as to why that church died. Because they had the mindset that the new members were just kids. I'm wondering, maybe... If perhaps the Seventh-day Adventist Church has the same problems. I know, I'm going to meddling now. <clears throat> Let's take a look. What's the average age of the membership in the United States? Seventh-day Adventist Church. 55? 55? 
I could be an auctioneer up here, you know. I'll give it to you. 58. Now, I'm 67, so 58 really isn't all that. Except if it's the average age for a church, that's problematic, isn't it? And not only that, I discovered there are 1,000 churches in the U.S. that have no children. Seventh-day Adventist churches. I don't know what the total is, but that's disturbing. That's 20 per state. And the criteria they used to determine whether they had no children was there weren't enough children to have a Sabbath school. Now I ask you, how many children does it take? One child, so that tells me there are no children, right? A thousand churches, 20 per state. No kids. So if you have the average age for the church members in the U.S. is 58, and you add to that 1,000 churches with no children, and you add to that 50% of the youth going out the door, to me, that's a challenge in dying church. In the United States, we're not growing like the others are, are we? We have how many members here? A million and a half? Out of the 19 million now? The place where it all started? Satan is working on those kids in a very successful way. What can be done? Can you finish that? Yeah. Use them or lose them. I'm the same way. When I signed up to play on a team, I didn't sign up to do this. Right? Right? Sit there, you know, leaning narrow across the fence, and everybody else is playing. You can tell he's really excited about it. And then, of course, you have little Perk. Got a uniform on, got the helmet, but just doesn't quite have it. So he's riding a pine. But I wonder how many kids in our church experience the same thing. Youth today stay on the bench because their talents are unrecognized and unused. They're there and they're very talented. I worked with them for 43 years. I get it. Now, a lot of people don't. They haven't had that opportunity. I realize that. But young people can do it. What can youth do? Well, there's a little church not too far from one of your schools, Spencer, Tennessee. Now, you might not be able to see that up there very well, but you see the age. Somebody wrote the ages there beside these names on the church. What do I want to call it? Say it again. Well, church offices, yeah, but you know, they're, they're going through their nominations and their nominating committee. And so 18, 16, and over here 12, and 18 and 12 and 10 and so on, they seem to get it. Church clerk, 18? Are you kidding me? There it is. They get it. Now, why is that important? that we utilize our kids like that. Do you like to be needed? Yeah. 
I'll come back to a place where I feel like I'm useful, that I'm needed for some reason. These kids feel that way. Every church ought to be this way, utilizing their young people. And I want to tell you, youth can save churches. I know that because I've experienced it myself. Phil, I was at Fletcher. And some of you have had the opportunity of teaching seniors. You know about seniors, right? They're the ones that have the sign up there, the parents put it up there. Go out and make a living now while you still know everything. But one day in class, they're whining because uh, Phil will know, and others of you probably, but <clears throat> there are a lot of white-haired people over in the Fletcher Church. And they're going, we need our own church. We're tired of being over there with them and, and that kind of thing. We need to be able to do our own thing, you know, have our own church. I thought, Really? I happen to know a little church that looks almost exactly like that. I'm pointing at the one at the back, but like that. Ten church members, they were dying. They had one child in that membership. And so I went to them and I said, about 15 miles away from Fletcher, would you all be interested in young people coming and helping you here at your church? You know what they said? I know. You don't want to venture a guess. But the right answer came. Yes. And you know what? I went back to the senior class, and of course it was a shock to them. I said, y'all wanted your own church, right? Yeah, we do. And I said, okay, you got it. Well, they didn't know exactly what to do with that information. I said, I know of a church that has 10 members and they're about ready to close their doors. They need you to be there to help do everything. To do the Sabbath school for the little girl there. You need to help take up the offering. You may need to preach now and then. You need to stay by for potluck and help with some outreach in the afternoon. Are you guys in or not? Now's the time to put up or shut up. And you know what? Those kids did that Sabbath after Sabbath for three years. And they bridged the gap. If that doesn't move your soul, you can't be moved. And now, that church is over there in Bavard, North Carolina, debt-free, because those kids filled the gap. They stepped up. Our kids can do it. George Barna surveyed 602 teens about what they saw themselves doing in 10 years in relationship to future religious activity. 60% of the teens surveyed said, if I am actively involved in the church now, I will be involved in 10 years. Only 14% said, if I'm not actively involved now, I'll be in the church no matter what. So, I say an engaged future is predicated on an active present. If we don't use them now, why in the world would we expect them to be there in 20 years when they become a card-carrying, tie-paying Adventist? Now, you're getting the sermon that I share with those in the churches, so I realize to a large degree I'm preaching to the choir because you guys get it. 
But to use our kids now helps make that difference. Satan is engaged or is making earnest, persevering efforts to corrupt the mind and debase the character of every youth. Not just one, every youth. And shall we, who have more experience, stand as mere spectators and see him accomplish his purpose without hindrance? Let us stand at our post as minutemen to work for these youth and through the help of God to hold them back from the pit of destruction. What a powerful challenge. One of these days we all are going to do this. Do you agree? That we are going to stand before the bar of God. And what if they, the parents, teachers, and church members, must set before them their children an example worthy of invitation? Should they be remiss in this respect, what will they answer if the children entrusted to them stand before the bar of heaven as witnesses to their neglect? Wow. That's going to be a tough courtroom. So what are your hopes and dreams and prayers for our young people? Wouldn't it be that they would find their place in God's work? Wouldn't it be to be there in heaven and see Jesus Christ himself welcoming these children of ours into his kingdom? He is asking us to be the invitation. He extends the invitation, but he's asking us to be a part of that invitation. Those of us who are strong and are able in the faith need to step in and land, or lend a hand to those who falter and not just do what is most convenient for us. Strength is for service, not status. Each one of us needs to look after the good of the people around us, asking questions, how can I help? Romans 15, 1 to 2. That's exactly what Jesus did. And people have asked me many times, well, what can I do? Well, each adult, I challenge them, Get to know the names of just two kids in your church and welcome them to church every Sabbath. First of all, the kids would probably pass out. They would be shocked that somebody would know my name, first off. <clears throat> and you know there was a town that, that had problems with the young people and they were having arrests and break-ins and all kind of stuff going on. And they were trying to figure out what they could do. And somebody said, why don't we just get to know their names? Do you know that the crime rate went down? They did better in school. They went on to college. It changed the whole tenor of things going on in that town just by getting to know their name. Choose the young people to personally mentor. Mentoring a young person is important. Now, many times I go to the Southern Tidings and I'll see in there four pages of obituaries. And I ask myself, how many holes are left in the church because they never mentored somebody to take their place? 
ensure that youth are involved in the mission and management of every church. That's their church. It's important to them just the same as adults. It impacts them and they should have a voice. Put them on the board. Let them be a part of what goes on. You'd be amazed at the decision-making they can have. If we don't teach our children to follow Christ, the world will teach them not to. That's the default. It is automatic. And we have to push back against that. The home, the school, and the church working effectively together. Those three entities, critical. Don't copy the customs of the world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. That's for our young people. Folks, I say to you today, Jesus Christ is coming soon. Prepare yourselves. Prepare your children. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful that we can be a part of the work that you have given us to touch the lives of young people. And what a powerful, heavy responsibility that is. But through the grace of God and the power of your Holy Spirit, it can be done. Bless each one of these individuals as they touch the lives of young people. Give them wisdom, direction, and understanding. May our young people be in your kingdom as a result. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.